This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Contraception. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Birth control use has been documented since the ancient Egyptian times. The Cahun Papyrus circa 1850 BCE, for example, discussed using contraceptive pessaries, including a mixture of ac acacia, honey, and date. The ancient Egyptians were onto something because modern research has confirmed that acacia gum ferments into lactic acid, which has spermicidal qualities, and is still used in some contraceptive products today. Akasha was not the only product from ancient times that has proven useful. In ancient Greece, a variety of plants, including Queen Anne's lace, was used. Queen Anne's lace has been confirmed to have postcoital anti-fertility properties and is still used sometimes in India for birth control. But birth control also has a dark history of criminalization and stigma. Fast forward to March of 1873. The U.S. Congress passes the Comstock Law. This law labels contraception as obscenity and outlaws its dissemination through interstate commerce and the U.S. Postal Service. Women's health pioneer and advocate Margaret Sanger worked tirelessly throughout her life to advance women's health and oppose the Comstock Law. She envisioned a magic pill that was as easy to take as aspirin that could prevent pregnancy. She gained a victory in 1936 in a court decision titled U.S. versus One Package. This court ruling allowed physicians to receive contraception, in this case, a package of diaphragms, which at the time was the most effective form of birth control available, through the U.S. Postal Service. This was a huge step forward toward legitimizing contraceptives in the medical profession and led to the American Medical Association officially recognizing it as part of a physician's medical practice. In her, finally, in her 70s, 
Margaret Sanger saw her vision for a magic pill come to life when gynecologist Dr. John Rock and biologist Gregory Pincus developed the first, the first birth control pill. Today, there are a lot more options for contraception. So many, in fact, that it can be kind of confusing at times which one to choose. So to review contraception and some of the more recent updates, I have invited two of Ohio State University's experts. First, I have Dr. Brett Worley, who is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology and a leader of medical education. He has published multiple papers on the relationship between hormonal contraception and mental health. And I also have Hannah Parks, who is a doctor of nursing practice and a pediatric primary care nurse practitioner who I've worked with for several years in primary care. Brett, Hannah, welcome to MedNet. Thank you. Thank you. Brett, how many forms of birth control are available these days? There's so many. I'm so glad that we're here today to talk about it all. Um, uh, there's so many different options. And, and I think the idea isn't just that there's so many options, but there, uh, each option is different and uh, each patient needs to have a different option that fits best for them. Uh, thanks. Perfect. I'm excited to hear what you have to say. And Hannah, are all forms of birth control safe to use in adolescence? They are, and birth control is a very important conversation to have with our adolescent patient population, so I'm excited to talk a little bit more about it today. Thanks, Hannah. Before we get started with today's talk, I wanted to let you know about our podcast. You can listen to the audio portion of all 120 of our programs via the MedNet 21 CME podcast. Search for that on your favorite app. Please don't forget to send us your questions using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast. Now I'll turn things over to Brett to discuss contraception. Great, thank you so much, I appreciate it. Uh, again, I'm just really excited to talk with you about all this today. Uh, I think that contraception is absolutely so important for our patients. Um, uh, many patients um, have contraception needs and, and making sure that they have the right fit for them is, is absolutely important. Um, today we'll go ahead and talk about some different topics. Uh, we'll go ahead and talk about uh, um, motivating learners to identify historical inequities regarding contraception, identify reasons why contraception may be important for patients, understand the decision-making process for contraception options, feel comfortable counseling patients on different contraception options, recognize absolute and relative contraindications for contraception, and, and identify common side effects with contraception options. Let's get started. Um, so there have been historical inequities in contraception, and, and this is something that I think we as a society, we as healthcare providers, and our patients are finding out more and more, unfortunately. Um, uh, unfortunately, there's a history of implicit bias where people make, uh, where healthcare providers will sometimes make assumptions about um, uh, what patients know or what's right for a particular patient. Um, uh, there's a history of forced or coerced permanent serialization based on race, socioeconomic status in our country uh, that's happened even within the past 10 to 15 years, very recent. Um, uh, there's experimentation, unfortunately, that happened for people of uh, different races and socioeconomic backgrounds, um, uh, particularly in the South and other places across the country. Um, uh, and, and constantly still we see issues as far as like coercion for patients, um, uh, trying to somehow figure out or, or uh, encourage patients in a forceful way um, to go ahead and think about a particular method of contraception that may or may not be the right choice for them uh, based on uh, kind of the, the leadership in our country, based on the uh, state level leadership, uh, based on the community uh, healthcare providers, um, uh, from a family perspective, uh, within the confines of just an individual relationship. And, 
and also a healthcare provider or a doctor relationship. So these are all things that we need to be wary of and alert about. Um, uh, patients will sometimes have questions, and so uh, really doing some background research sometimes can be helpful as far as making sure that we're up to speed with all this. So why think about contraception? Um, well, actually, just a brief story. I used to be a high school and middle school science and math teacher before I became a, a physician. And um, one of the things that I noticed as a high school teacher, unfortunately, was about um, a half of the females within my classroom in Washington, D.C. Uh, were pregnant by the end of the year. This floored me. This was very different than what I was normally expecting uh, in a normal high school classroom based on kind of my own personal experience. Um, but it really highlighted the need that contraception is something that we need to think about. Um, and so I'm so glad to talk with you today about it. And I'm glad that Hannah's here as well um, so that she can provide a, a perspective from the adolescent um, uh, um, aspect too. Um, so why go ahead and think about this? So about three quarters of adolescent pregnancies are unintended. 45% of U.S. pregnancies are unplanned. 85% um, uh, of premenopausal sexually active patients with a uterus will be pregnant in one year with regular unprotected sex. So I think each of those points is really important. Um, uh, let's keep going here. Um, so here's a common issue that I'll go ahead and uh, need to think about for patients. They'll come in with, a, a, for instance, a 21-year-old patient, um, a G0, so gravita zero, para zero, comes in to talk about contraception. Where do we even start, right? So um, it used to be that uh, we'd had different kind of perspectives on this. Um, uh, previously, there was like a, a menu option, right? So we'd present a patient with a menu, with a table or with a chart, and say, you know, hey, you can try to choose this, 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 or this, um, uh, based on uh, efficacy, mechanism of action, cost, side effects. Um, it would be a completely non-directive uh, informed choice. Uh, the opposite end of that spectrum is directive counseling. So we tell patients, you need to get your tubes tied or, or something of that nature. And, and I think over the, the past years, we've really learned that there are different options that, that might be better as far as patient compliance, as far as uh, making sure that patients are comfortable with the choices that they make. And, and so that's somewhere in the middle. That's that shared decision-making model where we talk with patients, um, we get their sense of their priorities, their values, their medical problems. Um, uh, we as healthcare providers can provide uh, healthcare uh, knowledge for those patients and, and help them make that decision. You know, uh, I understand, um, uh, you know, Ms. X, that uh, that you have migraine headaches with Aura, that you want something that you can go ahead and uh, use regularly to go and prevent pregnancy. Here are some different options that might be right. These are some options that aren't right for you. So those can be good ways to go ahead and uh, start that conversation off. Um, uh, one of the options that we can sometimes use for some patients is non-hormonal, non-barrier methods. Um, so these are our options, for instance, like natural family planning, um, uh, fertility awareness. This is something that works really well for patients that have uh, regular um, uh, menses or regular periods uh, that have uh, predictable ovulation cycles. Uh, and so for these patients, this works really well. Um, they can use, for instance, basal body temperature, where they take their temperature the first thing in the morning to go ahead and kind of monitor. Um, uh, they can go ahead and keep track on the calendar and uh, make sure that they don't uh, have sex around the time that they're most likely to ovulate, uh, they can go ahead and keep track of their cervical mucus uh, to go ahead and kind of track this as well. Some patients just, this is the perfect option for them. This is really good, particularly for patients in a stable relationship where they don't have other partners or their partner doesn't have other partners. Um, all, all these options are really good uh, as long as patients don't have other partners with a concern for sexually transmitted infections. Withdrawal method uh, also uh, works really well in this particular confine 
fine in this particular setting. Um, uh, you know, uh, for some patients, it can be highly effective, 96% effective. Um, uh, of course, there are patients, for instance, who aren't in a stable relationship, particularly younger patients who aren't kind of quite as aware as far as uh, orgasm and, and ejaculation, um, that that, uh, um, that uh, withdrawal method uh, option is not particularly a good option for them. Uh, spermicide uh, can also be a good option for some patients, um, uh, not quite as effective as some of these others that we've been talking about. Um, there's a newer vaginal gel that's also on the market, um, and I've gotten some calls about it, and patients are really excited about anything that's new. This is a new option. It's a vaginal gel. It's by prescription only, and unfortunately, it can be expensive. It can be a few hundred dollars a month for some patients, and, and so that immediately for some patients makes them not interested in this any longer. But this can be a good option for patients, and, and it can be an effective way to go and prevent pregnancy as well. Barrier methods. Uh, female condom has been out uh, probably in the past 10 to 20 years, maybe 30 years now. I'm uh, aging myself. Uh, male condoms, uh, you know, uh, uh, centuries, uh, probably even uh, millennia actually. Uh, the diaphragm we were talking about before and the, the um, law case that we were talking about. Um, uh, but the efficacy is high as far as it's um, a perfect use. Uh, the, the trick is you have to go ahead and use it every single time. And that's sometimes hard for patients, um, uh, and so it's just important to counsel them. Uh, Short-acting reversible hormonal contraception options. These include things like um, uh, birth control pills. There's some that have estrogen and progesterone, some that have progesterone only. There's a transdermal patch that lasts for about a week at a time, a vaginal ring that lasts for about um, uh, three weeks at a time. We'll talk in a little bit about one that actually lasts for an entire year. Hannah's gonna bring that one up too. Uh, and, and efficacy is high for perfect use. And even typical use, these are really effective. Um, uh, you know, particularly for patients that are gonna be really good at taking a birth control pill every day, very good. Um, the catch is that there are some patients who will miss some pills, so it's just important to make sure that you have the right patient on the right medicine at the right time. Uh, side effects can include irregular bleeding, particularly when starting these methods, nausea and sore breasts. Uh, how does it work? Um, uh, so um, uh, it can work with ovulation prevention, uh, it can thicken the cervical mucus, or make the endometrial environment uh, inhospitable. Long-acting reversible contraception options are also uh, highly effective for patients, and they take out that, um, uh, that issue as far as making sure that patients are doing something regularly to go ahead and, and keep them working. Uh, so intramuscular injection, um, uh, progestin-only option works very well every three months. An implantable rod right under a person's skin uh, lasts for three up to four years for patients. An interuterine device or IUD works highly, uh, works exceptionally well, can last anywhere from about three years for some of the options, all the way up to 12 years for some of the different IUD options, so highly effective. And, and again, the perfect use and the typical use for these are almost the same here, just because patients don't have to do something regularly to make sure that they're effective for them. Side effects can include abnormal bleeding, cramping, uh, increased appetite for some of them. Um, a mechanism of action includes uh, inhibiting ovulation for some of these different options, inhibiting sperm transport, inhospitable endometrium, and, and preventing implantation. So these are some different uh, options that are, again, highly effective for patients. Um, permanent sterilization is also an option for patients. Some patients know absolutely no way, no how do they ever want to get pregnant again. And so for those patients, permanent sterilization is a really good choice. Um, a vasectomy can be highly effective, can be done at a family medicine doctor's office or urologist's office, uh, oftentimes in the outpatient setting. Uh, tubal sterilization, um, I do these frequently. Uh, tiny little incisions, laparoscopic surgery, uh, patients usually do really well. Um, there are small risks because it's a procedure 
procedure, right? So for instance, for patients that are getting um, tubal sterilization, infection, bleeding, injury to bowel bladder are all concerns. Um, uh, patients will sometimes regret these decisions. Um, uh, for patients, particularly younger patients, they do have a higher risk of regret. Uh, about 20% of them, uh, based on uh, studies, uh, suggest that over the next years, they'll go ahead and regret their decision. And that's really hard. They no longer have their fertility. In order to get pregnant, you could have a tuba tuba reanastomosis if you're a patient with a uterus. Um, uh, that's sometimes an expensive procedure. It works about 50% of the time based on the literature, and it's another surgery. And sometimes patients don't have insurance at that time, or sometimes insurance doesn't cover it. So this is a really good option for patients that are absolutely certain that this is the, the thing for them. Um, uh, but for patients that are uncertain, permanent sterilization probably isn't the right way to go. Emergency contraception can also be helpful for patients. Um, patients make a mistake, patients do something, or a condom breaks, or they forget you know, their, their uh, uh, birth control pills when they go on vacation. You know, these are common complaints that I hear as an OBGYN. Um, and, and so these options are highly effective, particularly less than, less than 120 hours after that unprotected sex act. Um, uh, you read about in textbooks, there's something called the USP method, um, which is basically where you take a bunch of birth control pills to go ahead and prevent pregnancy. You have to be really careful with this. There are different charts that you can look up on the internet and figure out kind of which um, birth control pill the patient's taking, figure out the exact number of birth control pills that the patient needs to take in order to be successful with the USP method. Um, uh, more commonly, though, we now use the levonorgestrel-based pills. These are over-the-counter medicines. Um, uh, you get them at uh, most pharmacies around town. Um, uh, you don't need a prescription for them. Sometimes these are behind the counter. We actually have to ask a pharmacist for them. But they're available to patients, and they're relatively affordable. Affordable. Uh, oftentimes it can be anywhere from like 30 up to $80 depending on the brand that a patient chooses. And, and so these are highly effective. They usually work with inhibiting ovulation or delaying ovulation uh, and, and again works well for patients in that emergency situation. Uh, additionally, there's an IUD or intrauterine device, uh, either the hormonal one or the non-hormonal one, uh, can be highly effective too within that less than 120 hour window um, to go ahead and prevent pregnancy. Um, uh, basically it makes the, the uterine uh, lining inhospitable. Um, Olaparistol acetate is a newer medication, uh, a little bit more expensive, so that's a, um, a drawback for some patients. Um, uh, but it's a, a selective estrogen receptor modulator, and it uh, prevents ovulation and also creates an unfavorable intrauterine environment. Um, uh, efficacy is good. It's not perfect. It's good. Uh, usually about 85% effective, um, uh, sometimes up to 100% effective. Uh, and we were talking before, um, uh, for some of these, there's a, a, a weight issue. So particularly the patients who are using the levonorgestrel-based pills, um, uh, those patients sometimes can go ahead and have less efficacy if they're over 200 pounds based on some of the literature. Um, uh, particularly IUDs should not be an issue with all this. Regardless of the patient's weight, the IUDs should be effective for all patients of all weight categories. Uh, and again, some of these side effects could include things like uh, nausea, regular bleeding and cramping. Those kinds of things do happen for patients. Uh, a common question I'll get as an OBGYN is, well, doc, I have this. Is it still okay to have this type of birth control contraception option? And, and, and it's important to go and be cognizant of some different contraindications to contraception, specifically with estrogen-containing products. These aren't all of them, but these are some of the common ones that I'll see in the office. So for instance, if a patient has migraine with aura, um, if a patient has poorly controlled hypertension, or, or um, uh, if a patient has an allergy, a previous allergy to estrogen or progestin-containing 
options. That would be a relative contradiction, that would be an absolute contraindication as well. Uh, smokers who are 35 years and older, um, that would be a contraindication to estrogen containing products. If they have a history of deep venous thrombosis or pulmonary embolism, or even if they have a superficial venous thrombosis, that would be another contraindication. If they're about to undergo major surgery with a prolonged immobilization, hereditary thrombophilia with antiphospholipid antibody test results positive, poorly controlled IBS, and systemic lupus erythematosus, um, uh, again, if they have the positive antiphospholipid antibody result, that'd be a contraindication to estrogen. Um, there are special cases too, um, uh, so uh, I get common questions about this. Um, uh, breastfeeding patients, what to do? Uh, is it okay to use estrogen? Is it okay to not use estrogen? Uh, and for most patients um, uh, with our, our breastfeeding, you can go ahead and use estrogen. It's absolutely fine. Usually if it's about like six weeks or more after delivery, um, uh, you can tell patients that they might need to go ahead and uh, watch out on their milk supply. Every so often I have patients who notice that their breast milk supply will decrease ever so slightly. Um, but at least in some good studies, it doesn't suggest that there's a decrease in baby's weight with these different options. And really, for me and for most of my patients, um, they don't, it's not so important as far as exactly how much milk comes out of their breasts. What really matters is their baby's health and the baby's weight. So this shouldn't negatively impact that. Uh, obesity is another question. There's been some different studies in the literature if you go ahead and look on uh, some different websites. Um, uh, but for the most part, uh, obesity should not um, uh, negatively impact the efficacy of a different hormonal contraception. Uh, depression. Uh, we recently did a study to go ahead and see if um, uh, there are certain options that would go ahead, or certain birth control or contraception options that would go ahead and cause depression or link to depression. And, and we weren't able to find any specific links. Uh, contraception options certainly are going to go ahead and uh, for some patients cause some mood effects, but those are harder to measure, particularly when you're thinking about like a meta-analysis or, or looking throughout the entire literature. Um, uh, so that's something to counsel patients about and be cautious and, and careful. Um, for patients that have poorly excuse me, poorly controlled hypertension, progesterone-only options are probably a better bet for most of them. Uh, we talked about migraine, uh, patients with migraines with aura, progesterone-only options. If a patient has diabetes that's uh, lasting 20 years or more, if they have microvascular disease, they need a progesterone-only option. And for patients that have a, a breast cancer, particularly if it's a progesterone um, and or estrogen sensitive, they need to go ahead and consider an IUD that's, or an interuterine device. That's probably going to be their best option. Um, I have a couple pearls. I've been doing this for a while now, and so I just wanted to go ahead and pass these on to you. Um, uh, one of the things that I'll commonly use for patients as far as counseling is a, a website called bedsider.org. Um, this is designed, I believe, by the University of California at San Francisco. Um, it's an impartial uh, look at contraception options, including risks and benefits, side effects. They have interviews with patients who go ahead and talk about their experiences factual information that goes ahead and presents these different options for patients that I think does just a, a phenomenal job. So I recommend that. Uh, take a look at it. Uh, patients sometimes go ahead and they'll write down their website. Other patients take it home and then go ahead and, and talk with their partner, talk with their family member, talk with their friends and see what option works best for them. The other pearl that I have for you too is there's a, an app. There's an app for everything, right? There's now an app for uh, contraception options. There's no way that you and I can remember every single medical problem and whether this one or 
that one goes with this contraception option or not. So now there's an app to help out with this. Uh, the CDC has developed this. It's the USMEC app, um, uh, but it's uh, called uh, CDC Contraception. You can find it at your app store on your iPhone or Android device. Uh, and it does a phenomenal job as far as being able to look up, for instance, like a patient with lupus who has uh, anti-cardiolipin antibodies. Um, you can go ahead and look that up and see how high risk or low risk different options are and, and go ahead and help counsel patients there on the spot. So you don't have to go anywhere and, and look it up and that kind of thing. It's all on your phone. So these are, are great options and, and I strongly recommend considering these options for you and for your patients. Thank you, Brett. Um, I really appreciated you, especially going through that history in the beginning and uh, talking about the disparities. And then also, I, I think I was kind of surprised to see that spermicidal failure rate is higher than even the withdrawal method. Um, but, you know, one thing I don't know too much about is that new pH modulating vaginal gel. Does that vaginal gel increase rates of infections if it's changing the vaginal pH? Yeah, it might. Um, so uh, some patients will go ahead and have uh, subjective complaints of itching or, or odor or discharge. And so there is that potential with all that. Um, uh, the option is a good option. It's not one that I have a lot of patients use. Again, we talked before about how it is a little bit more expensive. It's a newer option. Uh, patients were really excited about it. And I think, you know, as time goes on, maybe it'll get less expensive and maybe be um, um, uh, more widespread as far as the, the number of patients that will use it and will have more experience. But that is a concern, you're right. Mm -hmm. And then um, when do you decide to stop contraception, especially if a woman is getting older, nearing menopause, um, and especially some of these uh, forms of contraception can suppress men's seas, so how would you even know that they're entering menopause? Yeah, great question, thank you. I actually saw a patient about this just the other day and uh, we were talking. So the average age for menopause in the United States is 51, 52 years old, and, and oftentimes for uh, patients as they near that age, it'll be a decision-making process that we'll have with a patient. There are risks with uh, taking off the birth control pills. You know, that patient who's 46 years old, um, uh, you know, she could potentially still get pregnant. So if we take off her birth control pills, that would be a concern. Uh, they can sometimes also help in that transition, you know, as they go through that perimenopausal state, have hot flashes or other types of menopausal complaints, birth control pills might minimize some of those effects. Uh, in addition, there's benefit with the birth control pills too. So um, uh, if you're on it for five to 10 years or longer, it can cut your risk of ovarian cancer by half. Um, so uh, there's some really uh, solid benefits with the uh, hormonal contraception and birth control options. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's a patient by patient discussion that you have to have uh, based on the risks and benefits, based on their individual medical history. But usually for a lot of patients around that 51 to 52 year mark, uh, I'll recommend that they consider uh, stopping or slowing down. Okay, that's really helpful, thank you. All right, for the second half of our talk, I'll turn things over to Hannah Parks, who will dive into contraception in adolescents and young adults. Hannah? All right, so contraception is a very important conversation to be familiar with and comfortable with in talking to our adolescents and providing that comprehensive um, sexual health care. So let's see, teen birth statistics. So factors that contribute to the likelihood of teen pregnancy include individual goals, societal pressures, family pressures, pubertal timing, age of first intercourse, risk-taking behaviors, and knowledge of contraceptive options. Most recent data from 2017 shows an overall decline in teen birth rates and a decline for each race and ethnicity group. This is likely attributed to an increase in sexual education and or an increase in the use of contraception over the past 20 years. Among teen births, mothers under the age of 17 are at an increased risk for preterm labor, low birth weight infants, and a neonatal mortality. 
Majority of states have specific laws regarding minor, minors' reproductive health rights confidentiality and minors' consent to, re, to contraception. For states without these laws in place, best practice guidelines, federal statutes, and federal case law may support minor confidentiality and consent. Confidentiality and consent limitations are linked to lower use of contraceptives and higher pregnancy rates. So it's very important to be familiar with your state's laws um, and local guidelines in regard to confidentiality for our adolescent patients. Um, when you want to start the conversation with adolescents about contraception, the Bright Futures and the American Academy of Pediatrics recommend taking a detailed and developmentally appropriate sexual history, evaluate STI and pregnancy risk, provide appropriate screening, counseling, and contraception if indicated and needed. An honest, caring, non-judgmental attitude and matter-of-fact question asking are key in gathering an accurate history. And there are five P's um, of sexual history, and those are partners, prevention of pregnancy, protection from STIs, sexual practices, past history of STIs, and pregnancy. And then other important elements to assess would be their menstrual history, past medical history, current medications, contraception history, body mass index, weight, blood pressure, and family history. Abstinence and contraceptive counseling. So discussing abstinence is important. Um, it's important to provide adolescent sexual health care. It's the only 100% effective approach to preventing pregnancy and STIs, so it does still remain a valuable part of contraceptive counseling. However, adherence to abstinence over time is still pretty low. So contraceptive counseling should include, include anticipatory guidance about possible menstrual changes, side effects, and non-contraceptive benefits of contraception, including management of irregular periods, abnormal uterine bleeding, treatment of dysmenorrhea, um, and pediatricians Pediatricians should continue to provide comprehensive sexual health information, including contraception initiation, supporting contraception adherence, managing side effects, and providing intermittent STI testing. It's important to discuss with your adolescent patients typical use versus perfect use. So typical use is the likelihood of pregnancy during the first year of use. It takes into consideration the varying degrees of adherence. And perfect use is the likelihood of pregnancy if it's used consistently, perfectly and correctly every single time. The most effective methods are those that rely less on individual adherence. When bringing up contraceptive methods with your um, adolescent patients, shared decision-making is very important. It's also recommended to discuss the most effective methods first. So on this picture here, you can see um, on the left side is those most effective methods. On the right is the least effective. So the implant, the intrauterine devices, the oral contraceptive pills, and then the milk condom. We'll get into each of these now. So long-acting reversible contraceptives, or LARCs, um, when discussing contraception, it's important to have shared decision-making. Adolescents have the right to choose their form of contraception, including LARCs, and they have the same right to discontinue LARCs without any barriers. So it's important when you, if you place a LARC or you refer a patient to have a LARC done, um, to provide that anticipatory guidance that discontinuing will also require an appointment for removal. So this is an implant. Um, it is about the size of a matchstick. It is implanted into the bottom part of the arm. Um, it is over 99% effective. It can be in place for three years. The most common side effect is breakthrough bleeding, and that breakthrough bleeding within the first um, three months is usually predictive of the pattern. So lots of anticipatory guidance um, about breakthrough bleeding and that those first three months are kind of going to show you what your likely bleeding tendency will be. 
So other side, at least less common side effects would be weight gain, headaches, and acne. And then there's some information on backup contraception after placement. It's not needed if inserted less than five days after onset of menstruation. And if more than five days after menstrual onset, they do recommend using backup or abstinence for seven days. Other LARCs would include intrauterine devices. So there's a picture of an IUD. There are different kinds of IUDs. Um, there's copper non-hormonal, and then there's other hormonal options. Their duration varies from um, three years to 10 plus years. Uh, most common side effects would be heavy menstrual bleeding or uh, dysmenorrhea. Um, infrequent or absent menstrual periods, um, this, these IUDs can be helpful for those with a history of menorrhagia, um, but just anticipatory guidance on the irregular bleeding spotting that can happen. And then there's some more information on backup contraception after placement. So with the implants, like I said, breakthrough bleeding is one of the most common causes of discontinuation and um, patient, poor patient satisfaction. So making sure that you provide that anticipatory guidance, changes in bleeding patterns are expected with, expected with implants and are the main cause for discontinuing, like I had said. Adolescent discontinuation rates, though, still remain fairly low at around 10% in the first year. Um, the bleeding pattern within the first three months is generally predictive of future bleeding patterns and then just making sure that they know um, prior to inserting that this can happen, um, but also providing that same reassurance that if at any point they decide they want to take it out, that it can be removed. So a different approach to breakthrough bleeding with implants. So the biggest thing is ask the patient if it's tolerable. So if it's tolerable, provide reassurance and signs that would warrant reevaluation re would be pelvic, pelvic pain, needing to change their pad or tampon hourly, um, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, vaginal discharge um, or vaginal complaints. So if it's tolerable and the patient's okay and doesn't have any red flags, then that's okay. But if it is bothersome, um, pending patient symptoms, rule out pregnancy, infection, cervicitis, um, PID, and then if any of those were positive, obviously manage that appropriately. But if bothersome and negative for pregnancy or infection, um, some other treatments would be naproxen, uh, 500 twice daily for five days, um, combined oral contraceptives, um, Agestin, or you can remove the implant. And then if other treatments are successful, then go ahead and provide reassurance. Um, if they're unsuccessful, then you can offer that removal. But again, the biggest thing is just reassuring that these adolescent patients that they really have a decision in the process. So if they want it taken out first, then they can have it taken out first. Um, so this is a progestin injection. Um, this is can be given intramuscularly or sub-Q. It is effective for 11 to 13 weeks. The most common side effects are regular bleeding, weight gain, which is usually seen within the first three months, acne, headaches, um, and then backup contraception of seven days if the repeat dose is more than 15 weeks from the last injection. Um, other indications, it can be used for treatment of dysmenorrhea, dysmenorrhea or menorrhagia. And then here are those combined oral contraceptive pills. So this is the most popular method. It is 91% effective. Um, it prevents ovulation by inhibiting the gonadotropin-releasing hormone axis, and is, they also thicken the cervical mucus, um, which leads to endometrial atrophy and changes in the tubal transport mechanism. Um, a benefit of the pills is that they can be started the same day without a negative pregnancy test, or with a negative pregnancy test, excuse me. Um, a contraindications, um, Brett went through a little bit of those earlier, so thromboembolic disorder, migraines with aura or severe hypertension. The most common side effects of um, COCs would be irregular bleeding, headaches, nausea. Um, you might need to adjust the strength and type of hormones depending on the patient's needs, and you do need to use backup contraceptive for the first seven days.
it's really important to talk to your adolescents about all of these contraception options to let them know that while they are effective in helping prevent pregnancy, they do not prevent STI. So just encouraging that if they are sexually active that they still need to wear, um, use a condom to prevent sexually transmitted infections. So um, combined oral contraceptive pills, it's recommended to prescribe a whole year of these at a time to prevent any lapse, but it can be helpful to follow up with the patients one to three months after starting to evaluate side effects, adherence. Um, one of the negatives of pills is that a patient has to remember to take it every day. So that is something that it's really important to go through with the patient. Go through with the patient. Um, you can consider an extended cycle or continuous cycle regimens for patients with menstrual-related problems, including anemia, menorrhagia, bloating, dysmenorrhea, um, endometriosis, menstrual headaches, or those with um, premenstrual dysphoric disorder or hypergonadism, hypo, hyperandrogenism. Um, most common side effects of the extended or continuous cycle is a breakthrough bleeding. And then there are non-contraceptive benefits, so you can treat all these things, treat acne, um, I'll have a table here coming up where we can show some of these um, specific reasons for pills. Um, but one of the biggest things, again, is making sure that your patient knows that they need to take them at the same time every day, um, whether that be setting an alarm on their phone, having family members support or reminders, um, putting it next to their toothbrush. Um, so the less that they take it every day, the less effective that it'll be. So a common question is what, what happens if I miss a pill? So on the left-hand side, if you miss one pill, you take it as soon as you remember, um, and then consider emergency contraception if you missed other pills within the same month. If you miss two in a row, um, only take the most recently missed pill as soon as you remember. You still need backup protection. Um, you can consider emergency contraception if it's during the first week of your, of your pack. Um, and then if you miss two in a row during the last week, you need to take the most recently one plus skip the placebo week or use backup protection. Um, it's really important to remind patient that it takes, patients that it takes seven consecutive hormonal pills to prevent ovulation. Um, it can be helpful to be familiar with the hormone effects of progesterone. If it's too high, you might notice side effects of breast tenderness, headache, fatigue, mood changes. If the progesterone's too low, it can lead to breakthrough. Um, breakthrough bleeding in the late cycle. Estrogen that's too high can lead to breast tenderness, nausea, fatigue, headache, bloating, melasma, and increased blood pressure. And if the estrogen's, estrogen's too low, it can lead to spotting and or early to mid-cycle breakthrough bleeding. And then for androgens, if it's too high, you can have acne, weight gain, increased LDL, decreased HDL, hirsutism. So if a patient comes, you talk through all their different options of birth control, and sometimes I'll even give them these options and say, hey, go home, take a look at these, if you want to talk it through with anyone, let me know, bring it back, we can make sure this happens. Um, but if, say, they come back, they say they want to try pills, what do you need to do? So you don't actually need to do a pelvic exam prior to start, but you do need to do a negative, or have a pregnancy test that's negative, and a recent blood pressure, or current blood pressure. Consider STI screening based off their sexual history. Um, pap smears are recommended three years after the first time having sexual intercourse or 21 years of age, whichever comes first. And then there's three types of um, COCs. There's monophasic, biphasic, and triphasic. Multiphasic agents have no real clinical advantage and there are differing tablet strengths so, and colors. So this can be really confusing to patients. So the recommended um, starting spot would be a low-dose monophasic option um, to help balance safety and efficacy. So here are some rec recommended starting um, contraceptive pill options for our adolescent patients. And this is if you're not trying to, you know, you're not trying to treat a certain thing like acne or dysmenorrhea. So there's 21 hormonal active pills or seven placebo pills. 
So if you were going to take a continuous, you could also have them skip the seven placebo pills. So the brand names are on the left of some of the brand names now. Um, and then here's some different patient considerations. So say a patient comes to you, they don't necessarily want it for pregnancy prevention, but they want it to treat their acne or bloating or breast tenderness or breakthrough bleeding. So um, on the left, you'll see the condition and then in the middle, the option. So for acne, it would be to increase estrogen, progesterone and decrease androgen. So higher estrogen is recommended. Um, there is one, Yaz is FDA approved um, for the treatment of acne. So there's some options there um, for bloating, changing the progestin to um, drospirinone. Um, it is to be noted that that is a higher risk of a DVT. Um, for breast tenderness, lowering estrogens um, and lowering progestin or progestin only, and then breakthrough bleeding change higher estrogen, higher progestin, or lower androgen. Um, for depression and moodiness, lower the progestin option. Um, dysmenorrhea or irregular periods, you can do a lower um, progestin, lower andro androgen or no period pills. Um, Drospirinone or Yaz is um, FDA approved for PMDD, so that's just something to make note, make note of. Endometriosis, um, lower, in lower estrogen, higher progesterone or no period pills. Um, for headaches, lower estrogen, low progestin, hormonal fluctuations can trigger headaches. And then with migraines, change to progestin only. Um, and then for just a little bit of an FYI for menstrual migraines, seasonal or seasonique can help to keep hormones stable, um, preventing that migraine-induced drop. And then nausea, lower estrogen if you want to treat PCOS, um, lower androgen, lower progestin, severe cramping, higher progestin, or no period pills, um, but most of the, most pills will be effective for this. And then weight gain, lower estrogen or progestin. Um, there are progestin-only pills, also known as mini pills. They work by thickening cervical mucus and not by inhibiting ovulation. Um, stringent ad adherence is necessary, um, so there is a higher failure rate than other progestin-only methods or COCs. Um, consider this for patients with a history of menstrual mig or history of migraines with aura less than 35 years of age that are non-smokers with a normal blood pressure or for breastfeeding moms, um, backup contraception, none if started within the five, first five days of your menstrual period, um, if more than four, five days after the start of menstruation, abstain or use additional protection for two days. Um, these are different options for um, production-only pills. Um, the top two both act as a contraceptive, um, and then the non-contraceptive options are um, the ones at the bottom. Um, a transdermal patch is another option for contraceptive contraception for our adolescent patients. Um, so this is the one that um, at the top there is the ethanol stradiol um, neurogestromin um, exposed to higher concentrations of ethanol stradiol, which can heighten the risk of um, venous thrombo thromboembolic events. And then there's um, the ethanol stradiol levonorgestrel option at the bottom. With the transdermal patch, these are 91% effective. Um, the benefit of them is there's less frequent dosing, but they are more expensive. Um, they can have some skin irritation. Um, there's a higher incidence of breast discomfort or dysmenorrhea. Um, you can have breakthrough bleeding that typically improves after the first month. So it's worn for seven days at a time for three consecutive weeks, followed by one week without a patch. And then the application sites um, can be your buttocks, upper lateral arm, lower abdomen, upper torso, excluding the breasts. And then you rotate the sites with each application. 
Adolescents can continue to participate in exercise, bathing, swimming, and the use of whirlpool or um, sauna with these. A single patch can prevent ovulation for up to nine days. Um, consider this for patients who are concerned about daily adherence or those that are not candidates or do not want um, LARC or a, a depot injection. So if the, there's delayed attachment or patch detachment, so if your patch falls off, it's less than 48 hours since you applied it. Um, apply it as soon as possible. If it's less than 24 hours since the original patch was applied, you may apply it, um, may try to reapply with the same patch um, and then keep the same patch change day. And there's no additional contraceptive protection needed. Usually you do not need emergency contraception, but consider if it occurs um, early in the current cycle or the last week of the previous cycle. And if it's more than 48 hours since the application um, or reattachment, apply a new patch as soon as possible. Um, if it's in the if the delayed application or detachments in the third patch week, skip the patch free week and start a new patch, but keep the same original change patch change day. Um, you can use backup contraceptive contraception or avoid sexual intercourse until seven days of consecutive wear of the new patch. Um, consider emergency contraception if delayed application detachment occurred in the first week of the patch use and if unprotected intercourse in the previous five days. And then if you're not sure when your patch fell off or when you were supposed to reapply, if it's just default to this more than 48 hours um, process. And then here's the vaginal ring. So these are the two options. Um, the new one that is good for entire year, the entire year, that is the ethanol estradiol suggesterone acetate. Um, that is the new product Brett had mentioned earlier. The top one is ethanol estradiol etnogestrol. Um, it's the most comparable to the 30 microgram OCP. Um, there's a lower um, daily exposure of ethanol estradiol. So that's what the vaginal ring looks like. It's 91% effective. It's inserted into the vagina, stays in place for three weeks with removal for one week to induce withdrawal bleeding before a new ring is inserted. Um, you're in to instruct to insert a new ring even if bleeding has not stopped. And here are some adverse effects, which would be vaginal discomfort, irritation, nausea, vomiting, headache, bloating, breast tenderness, and spotting may occur, but usually does improve over time. Delayed insertion for the vaginal ring. If it's less than 48 hours, insert it, the new ring as soon as possible um, and keep the ring in until the scheduled change day. Um, no additional contraceptions needed. And then emergency contraception is usually not needed, but considered if delayed insertion was early in the current cycle or in the last week of the previous cycle. And then more than 48 hours since insertion or reinsertion, insert the new ring as soon as possible. Um, if the ring removal occurred in the third week, skip the hormone-free week and start a new ring immediately. Keep the new ring in until scheduled removal day. Um, you are supposed to use backup contraception or avoid sexual intercourse until seven consecutive days with a new ring in place. And then consider emergency contraception if delayed insertion, reinsertion happened within the first week of ring use and unprotected sex within the past five days. And then this is just a really helpful chart. A lot of the times once a patient comes to you and says, I want to start the pill or I want to start the patch or um, any other contraceptive option that they want, um, this kind of gives a quick look at when to start it, how to start it, if extra tests are needed before you can start, and additional contraception needs that you have. Perfect. That's it.
Thanks, Hannah. That was really helpful. I really love those tables, too. I think those would be a really great guide to help compare and contrast the different options in each category and just that kind of summary of what to start and what you need to check before starting. But speaking of all the different options, there are just so many different OCP options. How does a clinician keep them all straight and understand the nuances between the different types of hormones and the doses? So I think it can be helpful just to kind of have a idea of what each of the hormones, you know, if it's too much of estrogen or too much progestin, um, what those side effects can be. But like Brett had said earlier, there are wonderful apps and um, tables that are available for providers to use that can tell you like if they're trying to treat this, then use something like this. So I think those are really, really helpful. Um, just familiar, familiarize yourself with resources that are available. Have little cheat sheets for you to refer to in your office. Um, and kind of go from there. Perfect. And then what about for the um, shot, for the medroxyprogesterone mm -hmm. injection? Do we still need to be doing bone density scans for those patients who we, are on it long-term? We do not need to do that um, for patients on them long-term because it is thought that the de bone density is, um, any loss is reversible. Okay, and is that the only product that carries the bone density risk? What about the other progesterone-only products? It is the only um, product that carries that risk. The other progesterone-only products um, do not affect estrogen in the same way, so there's less risk of effect on bone density. Okay. I think moving to you, Brett, um, you know, uh, speaking of LARCs, I've seen some reports lately of there being some changes with the duration of how long you can use the LARCs. Um, what are some of the updates there? Yeah, hot off the presses. This is an exciting <laughs> area. Um, so uh, the Loletta, I just got an email the other day. It's now approved for um, uh, eight years. Uh, the Marina IUD is eight years. Um, the Paragard IUD has been officially approved, I believe, for 10 years, but can be used up to 12 years. The next one on, the, the implantable rod, that can, uh, that's officially approved for three years, I believe, but can be used up to four years. And there's more research that's coming out. So by the time you actually might view this podcast, there might be a whole <laughs> different answer for you. So stay tuned, um, uh, but it's an exciting field. Perfect. And then I'm really glad you also covered emergency contraception because I think that is a good option for patients who maybe didn't think ahead for the contraception part. But um, is there any interaction between, like let's, let's say we're starting somebody on emergency contraception, but we also wanna get them on some other form of long-term contraception. Is there any interaction between the emergency contraception and a different hormonal form? Sure, so it's possible that a patient could have additional side effects with that. Um, the, um, the emergency contraception does have some additional side effects, things like nausea and vomiting for some patients, sometimes cramping, sometimes regular bleeding, um, that's important to pay attention to for patients. That's different than some of the other hormonal contraception options that we were talking about. And so it's possible when using them in conjunction, uh, the um, other options plus emergency contraception together, that there might be some additional side effects, sure. Mm -hmm. And then Hannah, now you mentioned that you can use the um, combined oral contraceptions continuously without taking a break for menses. But what about, for example, the birth control patch or the ring? Can you do the same thing with those products? Yes, yes, you can. Okay. Yes, you can. Okay, so then lots of menstrual options. Perfect. One last question, Brett, and I know this is a toughie, so it's okay if you don't have a... Um, a you know, answer for this, but I think it bears asking, kind of bringing us back to your disparities discussion. Is there anything that we can, like us as primary care providers, OBGYNs, 
be doing to help address this disparity issue? Absolutely, great question. So, um, you know, I think it's, um, uh, there's a, a Harvard implicit bias test. Uh, all of us, if you haven't already, you can go ahead and take that to go ahead and see where your implicit biases are. Um, uh, these are things that we're not calling people racist. We're not saying that, but we all have things that we kind of like prejudge or think in our mind that are just like knee-jerk responses that sometimes happen. So I think number one is we should all be aware of our implicit biases. Uh, and number two, we should go into each and every room with uh, each and every patient uh, as that individual patient's primary health care provider and thinking about, you know, how can I help this patient, not how can I go ahead and um, uh, draw conclusions really quickly. You know, uh, sometimes we make decisions really quickly, but we should give the patient the, the options, the opportunities um, to go ahead and kind of explain their medical issues, to explain kind of their healthcare priorities, explain their, uh, their contraception or family planning priorities, and, and really fine tune whatever it is that, that we think is best for them um, so that we go ahead and help patients on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. Um, uh, we can also be advocates. Um, uh, knowing this, knowing these things can go ahead and be a, a an advocate, a sense of advocacy, so that when you see those patients, you'll know these uh, things, you'll be familiar with them. Uh, and even if you don't feel comfortable prescribing or if you don't feel comfortable inserting an IUD, you can go and get the patients to somebody that does. Mm -hmm. um, so making sure that all the patients that you and I see at least have the education piece in mind too. Um, uh, and then uh, for some of us, we'll be advocates. We'll be advocates either um, in our school boards, we'll be advocates um, uh, at the, um, the local government, the state government, some people even nationally. Um, there are all sorts of ways to go and get involved in all this. Uh, some people would rather just go ahead and donate money. Some people would rather actually physically go testify. And some of the people in our department have actually testified in the um, Ohio Senate to go ahead and talk about some of these different issues. So I think there are all sorts of ways that we can continuously be involved um, so that patients can go ahead and make the healthcare decisions that are right for them. And, and us as uh, healthcare providers or physicians can help them through that process. Great. It's good to hear that there are definitely options and things that we can be doing. Thank you guys so much for coming for this really important discussion and doing such a great job of going through all the different options and, you know, letting us know some of those socioeconomic um, factors as well. All right. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each of our presenters. Brett? Uh, thanks. Uh, so first of all, thank you again for uh, having us here. Just a, an enjoyable conversation. Um, uh, I think the, the main takeaway point from my perspective is, is that uh, patients with a uterus um, need to have some sort of plan in place. Um, uh, as an OBGYN, they need to have a plan either to go and get pregnant if they want to get pregnant and making sure that I'm um, uh, preening vitamins or, or making sure that we're looking out for their health. Or if they choose not to get pregnant, they need to go ahead and have a, a contraception option in place. And if they just kind of leave it to chance, oftentimes patients are going to get pregnant. So it's important that we counsel patients, make sure that patients are aware. And, and in um, each patient encounter, uh, 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 talk with patients about how it's important to have one plan or the other. Um, uh, if they need a contraception option, they can't always make the decision right then and there. But we can help them on that journey and, and provide that uh, information that's so important. Great. And Hannah? So providing our adolescents um, sexual health as part of their comprehensive care is very important, including you know, their right to contraception if they want it and including them in that shared decision making. So I think it's very important just to be mindful of that, be aware of that, and um, be open to discussing that with those adolescent patients. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to go out, go to our website at ccme.osu.edu to claim your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points. 
Join us next week to learn about depression and anxiety in the young with my guests, Dr. Allison Rossetti and Dr. Susie Friedman. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.